it strikes me as a product of you know people's brains on Twitter. If you think like a toddler, that is to say in 140 characters at a time, your ideas aren't going to develop into anything very sophisticated. <laughs> You're listening to the Dead Pundit Society. That diss track was brought to you by my guest this week, Christian Parenti. Stay tuned for much more hot fire. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundit Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of the podcast. Joining me today for a really insightful uh, conversation on free speech and the no-platforming tactic that has prevailed on college campuses across the country in recent weeks is Christian Parenti. Christian is an academic. He's an investigative journalist. He's an author of many books. The man knows a lot of things about a lot of topics, so stay tuned. Grab a pen and paper. We're going to be covering some controversial ground. Some of you might be pissed off. Tough shit. Stick around. You might learn something. This episode takes up a controversial topic, and that is the left's relationship to free speech. The no-platform technique, which is one that uses a strategy of trying to prevent a bigoted right-wing or racist speaker from speaking on college campuses or in communities, this tactic is a form of censorship. Now I know what some of you are thinking. Well, Adam, does this mean that we should just let any old bigot or right-wing racist trash speak on our campuses or in our communities? Well, yes, we should. But that doesn't mean we should just let it go unpunished or or unanswered. I think we need to be confident in our capabilities to counter these voices, uh, to attack them where it matters, in the realm of ideas and in, in the realm of material power. And let's not kid ourselves. As my loyal listeners will know, I am certainly not a Ruth Bader Ginsburg worshiping Hamilton obsessing liberal. I don't argue for free speech out of some moral necessity. Rather, it's the realization, if you look throughout history, the state, the capitalist state, will use repression and censorship first to attack the left. So insofar as we argue and we fight for censorship on our campuses and in in our communities, we are ensuring that these same powers of censorship will be used on us. So while appealing to authority to prevent bigoted speakers from appearing on campuses and in communities may seem appealing in the short term, in the medium to long term, we're sowing the seeds of our own destruction. Tactically, this just isn't smart. At the end of the day, we can punch as many Nazis as we like. We can thrash them on social media We can throw Molotov cocktails and disrupt their events. But ultimately, there's no amount of punching that's going to get us out of the impasse in which we find ourselves in neoliberal capitalism. There's no amount of punching that we can do to rid ourselves of the threat of the far right. 
I really think the, the, the movement that's coalesced around Bernie Sanders in the past six months or so really shines a light on what we need to do to move forward. And this show has done everything in its power to try to continue building on that message and to uh, sort of interrogate these processes and these tactics further. So with that in mind, if you're down with this project and you like what this podcast is all about, please consider donating. Join my Patreon page. Become a donor to the show. You can find this at www.patreon.com slash deadpundits. Once more, that's www.patreon.com slash deadpundits. I'm going to be adding subscriber-only content very soon. My subscribers will receive an exclusive episode once every month. So join to support the show. I really appreciate everything you guys do for us. And uh, we're all in this together. My interview with Christian Parenti is coming right up. But first, some wise words from Noam Chomsky. First of all, um, I should say that uh, one aspect of American U.S. life and culture that I think does deserve uh, respect and admiration is uh, protection of freedom of speech. The U.S. is unique in the world in that respect, to my knowledge. And I think that's really important. Uh, Next to freedom of thought, which is like a fundamental right, freedom of speech comes next. Everything else, I think, is secondary to it. Uh, However, you you should recognize that Freedom of speech in the United States, though it's, it is protected to a very high degree, uh, has not been protected historically. That's a recent development. And in fact, it's a development that came substantially out of the activist movement. And welcome back to the show. Joining me today is Christian Parenti. He is an author, political commentator, academic, and investigative journalist. Uh, most importantly, he's demonstrated legendary skills of prognostication. He has been ahead of the political curve for many years, reporting on the future of climate change, mass surveillance, mass incarceration, uh, and these were long before these would become lively academic trends that they are today. For our purposes, he's here to talk about his recent article that just appeared in Jacobin Magazine that he co-authored with James Davis. That's titled, Free Speech as Battleground, where they argue censorship used against our enemies will soon be used against us. Christian, thanks so much for joining us. How are you? Thank you for having me on. I'm good. How are you? I, you know, I've, I've been better. Uh, the world is grim these days, the last several months. Uh, we seem to be uh, living through some ups and downs recently. I don't know how to take it. Yeah. Yep. So your piece, you have a certain kind of critique that you and your co-author are trying to get across. You and your co-author pre- present the protests uh, at UC Berkeley and Middlebury College as bumptious overreactions. You suggest that they were baited judo style by the political right. Now, this assessment seems to fly in the face of the more muscular arguments that, that have been mentioned that are hegemonic on the left. Uh, how do you account for this difference? Well, in the yeah, narratives? I wouldn't say that the protests are bumptious overreactions, but within mm. the protests have been bumptious overreactions. And that is namely to go to the administration and ask for censorship. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jim and I both went on. He's in California and I'm here in New York and we have both been to protests of uh, vile speakers. And, um, you know, we're acutely aware in discussing this, that the, the left is being baited into appearing like 
it is afraid of intellectual combat, that it is afraid of ideas, and that it is a repressive force calling for censorship. So it was Jim actually who said, well, look, the thing is, you know, you, you can't call for censorship. And, and he, he went to, to university in Ireland in the late 80s, early 90s, I think it was late 80s. And, uh, you know, it was a very different kind of politics there. The, 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 the troubles were still very much underway in the north and um so i thought he, he just said that in a conversation that, yeah that made a lot of sense actually that that is a you know not just a stylistic flourish not just the detail but actually the main thing that the left needs to do is properly frame these confrontations with these provocateurs mm -hmm. and the way they were being framed was in, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of it was coming from the right, but, but the left was playing into this far too much into this idea of like student safety, all this crap, all this like total horseshit that dominates the worst parts of the campus left, which I got to say is, you know, I'm of a mixed mind of even using that term because it's something that really only exists primarily on elite campuses. Uh, the, 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 the concerns at a place like Brooklyn College or John Jay are very different than they are at Oberlin or Middlebury. Absolutely. So anyway, that, you know, there, there were, you know, the, the procedure was in most of these places, ask the university to disinvite these speakers and then protest. And I think it's actually important that we are very clear that we don't ask for censorship and that we frame our confrontations with these odious people and their odious ideas as free speech because the whole history of free speech is the left's. It is something that the American left should be proud of and should be championing, uh, trumpeting all the time because veneration for free speech is has mass appeal in this culture. And the reality is that it was the left, frequently the far left, that fought and in some cases died for this and delivered the mass mainstream right to free speech and assembly that we have. So what we lay out in the article is just real briefly the history, right? And a hundred years ago, the, the First Amendment was not interpreted necessarily as applying to the relationship between municipal governments and state governments and individuals. It was just about the individual and the federal government. And it took long, hard struggle for that to become uh, accepted for the nationalization of the First Amendment rights to apply to state and local governments. Right. As a legal principle in terms of uh, applying uh, to, to the masses in states and, and municipalities as well. And you mentioned in your article that in, in 1893, Emma Goldman was jailed for uh, encouraging hungry workers onto the streets. Uh, she spent eight months in jail for that. In 1909, the industrial workers of the world faced a lot of repression uh, during their campaign for nonviolent civil disobedience. And so these were instances where the state was using uh, anti-free speech laws to suppress the far left. Yeah, there were labor organizers in both these cases, right? I mean, the issue was trying to organize workers and the right to do that, the right to, to exercise free speech and assembly in that regard was being abrogated by local governments. And so the Wobblies campaign kicks off in Spokane and, you know, like up to 600 people are arrested for blocking the sidewalk and these other things. But it really what it was was the, the town was not allowing wobbly organizers to stand in the street on soapboxes and 
espouse about socialism, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on and on it goes through the ages up to the Berkeley free speech movement in the 1960s when the University of California wouldn't allow radical students, wouldn't allow radicals of any sort onto campus to sell newspapers, et cetera, et cetera. And that fight was was one the same way, people taking arrests, people being beaten up, et cetera, et cetera. So there is a real danger, we think, in taking the bait and calling for censorship. You know, this is exactly what the right wing wants because they're trying to make the left appear to the average American like a bunch of freaks. And that's not good, particularly at this moment where the left clearly has a new kind of traction, right? Mm -hmm. There is this uh, persistent slow growth, even though we're finally the economy is sort of heated up, but you know, the economy is, is, has been in the tank for almost a decade. We've got this lunatic, insane president. We have the mainstream Democrats just totally crashed and burned. And the, the spectacular, totally unexpected, uh, you know, triumph of Bernie Sanders to, to last through the entire primary. So we're in a moment now where the left has potentially mainstream traction. And it is not good if the left is seen as a group of people who are afraid of intellectual combat, who want to censor ideas, who don't really have anything to say about the issues and are going to resort to you know, student well-being. We didn't get into the whole thing about the en loco parentis role of universities, the infantilizing administrative procedures that university bureaucrats and frankly, you know, um, I don't know what it is, unthinking or um, overly zealous elements in the student left have helped to uh, build up this whole idea that the, the university is the parent. And it is true that universities, when, you know, particularly vis-a-vis students who are minors, have a certain kind of in loco parentis in place of parent responsibility. But you know, to start asking for the silencing of like frauds, racist frauds like Charles Murray on the grounds that it's going to, you know, that, that student psychological well-being has to be protected is to take the bait, is to take the bait and, and help the right out. Right. So I'll be talking with uh, Freddie DeBoer, uh, who has written much about uh, the, 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 this sort of tendency, the ethos and act student activist networks to appeal to administrators to solve their political problems on their behalf. And your article has a lot to say about that, because it seems to me that this broader call for censorship, whether it's in the state or on campuses, it can always be used uh, and will always be used inevitably uh, against the left. And so there's kind of a tragic structure about this. So you say that, you know, uh, the left is often uh, times, you know, presented by the right as this shrill, spoiled, uh, childish, you know, body of, of students seeking safe spaces and all these other types of things. And I think we really want to make a nuanced critique about that, right? Because there is a there is a right wing, I'm sure you agree, a right wing reactionary criticism of safe spaces, you know, which which is inherently sort of misogynistic and racist and even oftentimes maybe transphobic and other things like that. Um, you know, I think the right fought against the bathroom bill in, in North Carolina by sort of attacking safe spaces. And that's like, well, that's one of the places where we want to push back on that. But mm-hmm. they, what, what does this have to say about um, the way that folks have been, uh, have been 
protesting, say, uh, Milo Yiannopoulos and Charles Murray. Uh, how, how have they gone about doing this, and, and what would you and your co-author uh, like to see instead? Well, we, what we advocate is just a very simple, which is to not ask the universities to censor these people and to, to make that a big point and to frame the confrontations with these people and the disruptions of them as free speech and to unpack them and uh, their ideas such as they are and decimate them. Yeah, I mean, Charles Murray, it's amazing that this guy, he's like a zombie. He's an intellectual zombie that he's back from the dead yet again. He's been, you know, he's totally discredited and humiliated uh, around the bell curve because like all previous um, IQ and race studies, it turned out to be fraudulent. Right. So tell us a little bit about the argument in the bell curve for, for those. I mean, I think that this generation doesn't really know Charles Murray, whereas your generation was, was raised uh, to, to laugh yeah. at the man. So, so let's, uh, yeah, let's talk about that. A well, little bit. No, my generation was, you know, we, 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 we suffered through uh, respectful reviews in the New York times and fawning interviews on NPR. And then finally people like Adolph Reed and reporters at uh, Rolling Stone, you know, unpacked the clown's footnotes and what they found. So before we get to what they found, the, the argument of the bell curve was that there is a, a correlation between race and intelligence as measured by IQ. So there's a whole thing about IQ tests and whether they actually are a measure of intelligence. They're originally designed as a diagnostic test. Anyway, blah, 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 blah. Long story short, Charles Murray argues that yes, there is. There's this, there's a, uh, kind of a racial component to intelligence. Well, the problem was, and this was this was accepted like, wow, hmm, science, gee, shall we, um, you know, discuss this? Right. And uh, this was based on all of his footnotes came down to five articles in an academic journal called Mankind Quarterly, which is owned by a sort of Scottish, or at least then was owned by a Scottish nobleman and is an openly white supremacist sort of, you know, it's a throwback to 19th century race theory stuff. And these articles themselves were completely without merit. Mm-hmm. One author, a Canadian, I forget his name, he had tenure, and his colleagues were so ashamed of him. They couldn't get rid of him, but they at least got his name taken off his door. I mean, he would his studies would involve going up to people in supermarkets and like, asking them just bizarre, um, very unhinged questions. And then he would write this up as if it was scientific studies about intelligence and race. So, And he's a sociologist, right? Uh, Murray? A tenured sociologist. No, Murray is not a tenured sociologist, I don't okay. think. Okay. He was okay. at the Manhattan Institute. No, Murray was a kind of a loser. Mur- Murray okay. was sort of like kicking around the think tank scene, and he was, ah. he was championed by the Manhattan Institute, during the 90s until the whole bell curve thing blew up in his face. And then he went away and now he's back. He's back um, and this l- time, looking for a second life under the Trump administration. Yeah. And this time, you know, he's he's moved off of the kind of genetic racism on to trying to revive the culture of poverty thesis, which is mm-hmm. an old trope within sociology. And uh, he's, uh, you know, applying it to white people that the the deaths of despair the rust belt you know white lumpenized working class are poor because they don't have family values etc cetera, etc cetera. and this isn't far this isn't far from jd vance and uh, hillbilly elegies and that type of thing you know right yeah I mean, this stuff just it continually gets revived and warmed over it just is you know, to blame, right? yeah 
I mean, Hillary, Hillary Clinton was essentially saying this in 1996 when she called the uh, inner city youths super predators who need to be brought to heel, right? So I mean, Cl- Hillary Clinton herself was sort of espousing some of this Murray, uh, Murrayism. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. The whole, I mean, the ending welfare as we know it, quote unquote, under Bill Clinton relied heavily on the culture of poverty thesis, this idea that people are poor because they lack a work ethic, right? Which overlooks the fact that there's structural unemployment, that capitalism produces unemployment through recurrent crisis, crisis of overproduction and then collapse, right? And also it produces it as a matter of policy that there, the, the, the Federal Reserve will actually attempt to cool down economic growth for fear of inflation. But really the underlying thing is for fear that wages are bid up mm-hmm. and cut into profits. And the moment that all of this becomes really profoundly uh, important and not just theories to justify greed uh, is the 1970s when there is enough of a, a developed sort of social welfare system in the U.S. and a cultural rebellion. Um, and uh, you, you see in the midst of that economic crisis, there is a profit crisis in the 1970s. You have right. the, the basically the world economy has recovered from World War II, and there's finally, by the late 60s, sort of like global overproduction. There's a glut in markets. Growth starts to slow down, and for the first time ever, wages don't go down in response. So you have the Phillips curve is for the first time ever out of whack. Typically, when unemployment would go up, wages and prices would go down. And so what you had was rising unemployment, and still rising prices, thus stagflation. What was going on, in part, were that workers were not as intimidated as they had been historically by the threat of unemployment because there was all of the the systems of sort of um, anemic but nonetheless real American social democracy. There were job training programs, there was a generous social welfare benefits, et cetera, et cetera. And so there was a lot of um, labor strife in the 70s, and um, all of this came at the expense of profits. And so ever since then, the U.S. ruling class has been uh, hawkishly diligent about tamping down worker expectations and in the name of fighting inflation, making sure that wages never rise too much. So the, you know, the, the argument, um, thus getting back to the point, is that you know, capitalism produces unemployment. It produces it through downturns, and it produces it deliberately so as to regulate the price of wages. So then to blame poverty on people's behavior is to entirely miss the point deliberately and obfuscate it. People are poor because there aren't enough jobs and because wealth is unequally distributed. Now, are, are some of the poor uh, present-oriented and do they make bad decisions? Certainly. Uh, do the rich do that as well? Absolutely. What, what the hell are the, the kind of – what is lifestyle reporting about all these – you know? Um, Rich kids like Paris Hilton and, and the Kardashians. I mean, well, half of that is about like dysfunction, right? But it's entertaining and it, it's, you know, it's not seen as like a, a pathology with large social consequences. But the point is that uh, this discourse of the culture of poverty is about trying to throw people's attention off of the structural questions and make the issue of poverty and unemployment an, uh, an issue of moral failings and individual character. So that's what Mar- Charles Murray's up to these days. And uh, he should be, you know, um, 
called out for it and his arguments should be decimated and anyone who invites him should be humiliated that they are embracing uh, such an intellectual clown. But activists, in our opinion, should not call upon universities to censor their enemies because it will be used against us. And it is already. It happens at universities. Right. I mean, I think I had a whole set of questions I was going to ask you about the logic of your article and so on and so forth. But I think you just enacted it uh, because I got to tell you, I study, uh, you know, the 1970s and the inflation, the stagflation crisis and all of the monetarism and the Fed and all these and the politics and the late the strike waves and all of this. You're not going to get a better, more concise uh, description than what you just laid out of, of that whole process of how we got uh, to the sort of like racialized uh, disparity and and unemployment and, 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 and that kind of thing. But but what's the way you sort of enacted it, what I mean by that is I don't see those types of discussions being had around uh, Charles Murray's appearance uh, on the university circuit again. What I do see is just he's a racist. We have to shut him down, which which I think, as you rightly point to, is just a very uh, it's a very just flat and pathetic way of doing it. it's moralistic and it seems that you're arguing yeah. for a strategic orientation right said. yeah yeah we say that we say look we, we say mm-hmm. we say look our point is not moral our point is strategic right. you know but yeah i mean i understand I'm, I'm not on any social media i don't do twitter or facebook i mean if if mark zuckerberg wants me to keep a dossier on myself and all of my <laughs> friends like the the, the place we can begin that conversation is how much is he going to pay me? And it's not going to go anywhere, but I'm certainly not going to do it for free. And I've got, you know, a stack of books, unread books staring at me, making me feel guilty. So I don't need to be reading Twitter, but I understand that, that a lot of people flipped out on Twitter as they do, um, about our argument. Um, so yeah, that's, um, that's unfortunate in my opinion. Yeah, one of the big slurs that is used against folks like myself, inevitably after I air this show, unfortunately, and uh, less less towards you because you've 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 earned a certain degree of clout on the left, and I'm not sure anybody has the courage to come at you that way. But uh, it's it's speech, bro. So you know the Bernie bro slur. You know, mm-hmm. is a Bernie bro. Well, they they've turned this into speech, bro, which is like you know this uh, this mythical character who always sort of comes in to save the day and, and argue free speech is important and, and it's sort of a really like liberal moralistic way but but this is absolutely not what you're advocating um so it seems to me that that's just a that's just a straw man that, that's easy for uh, that that's that wing of the far left to knock down well yeah i mean uh your rendition of what speech bro is was clear enough but to the extent that i understand it 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 strikes me as a product of you know, uh, people's brains on Twitter. If you think like a toddler, that is to say in 140 characters at a time, your ideas aren't going to develop, uh, into anything very sophisticated. So, uh, what I would say is actually like, no, uh, we, we are defending a certain element in classical liberalism, right? Free speech. And we are trying to excavate its radical left history. So if people think that the United States of America in all its, uh, munificence, decided to give the population the uh the first amendment they're wrong from the very beginning right so what we uh, one thing we left out of the article is like where's the first amendment come from where do any of these amendments come from right they couldn't pass the constitution they couldn't ratify the constitution because it was seen as creating this overpowering centralized state and it was only with the first 10 amendments to the constitution the bill of rights that they could even get the thing ratified. And so step one, 
you know, this is a right that was demanded by people. Protest movements got it into writing into the Constitution after the Constitutional Convention, right? Mm -hmm. Then it's not a real right. It's just on a piece of paper. And it takes a century of struggle for it to become a real right. And it's anarchists and communists and feminists going to jail, getting beaten up by, you know, the police. Um, I mean, you, you can read about, like, some of the stuff the Wobblies went through, man. They're basically tortured. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, the, so... Yeah. Okay. Free speech is one of these sacrosanct liberal rights. It's a trope of liberalism. Um, but what we're trying to say is like, it's valuable because we need it. Uh, and also our side produced it. We won it, right? It wasn't the ACLU. The ACLU is, I mean, look, the ACLU, they're liberal, this or that, whatever you can, mm -hmm. you can criticize. They had these big meetings recently, town hall meetings that um, my understanding were, 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 were uh, the politics was rather rather silly in that it completely whatever that's a whole other discussion we could have. But right. you no, know, the ACLU is actually born directly out of these fights, and sure, sure. the ACLU is sort of like you know the liberals, progressive liberals who come to the aid of the socialists, like Eugene Debs, who's sentenced to I think it was eight or ten years, does like five uh, mm -hmm. because he's he's protesting the war and. Um, you know, this is illegal under the Espionage Act, and he, he, his, his defense is free speech. He loses. So you know, the ACLU is actually also born directly out of these fights. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in, in a sense, it seems that we should be thankful that there is any well-funded, uh, well-represented liberal organization that's willing to have our backs, because we certainly can't do it alone. <laughs> it seems a little, it seems like biting the hand that feeds you in a sense. But this is, the ACLU is really kind of the boogeyman uh, amongst the far left when it comes to, to, to arguments around free speech. Yeah. Um, well, I guess I'm a little to the right of the far left on that. Um, there's also a kind of, there's a spectrum within the ACLU. You know, the old school ACLU leadership really flipped out when Anthony Romero, the current head of the ACLU, came in. They really did not like uh, him coming in. And what was interesting is Anthony Romero's dad was a waiter, I think, at the Waldorf Astoria, an immigrant, working class guy in a union. Anthony Romero has really solid class politics. I did a, a profile of him for a legal magazine a couple of years ago. And, um, you know, he's actually been taking the ACLU in, I would say, a pretty left direction. Um, you know, they, they got involved in, in fighting Guantanamo and um, renditions and all that sort of stuff. So they've played a very important role in checking the excesses of the police state, both abroad and at home. People always want to point, of course, to Citizens United, which allegedly the ACLU, uh, you know, submitted a brief or something like that. An on, amicus on brief. Behalf mm. of the, uh, on behalf of the, mm. the victors there. And so, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's always easy to kind of pick and choose in, 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 in that sort of way. And, but I mm -hmm. think you're absolutely correct to point to this, this history that not only uh, we, we played a large part in winning, uh, but we, we, you know, they're defending us uh, in, in really profound ways. Yeah, we, and we use it. And, um, you know, those protests against Milo, against Charles Murray, against others, um, you know, I mean, they are protected. And I've gone to those protests. Um, Murray or Milo didn't come here, but at NYU, um, some other clown came and went and protested. And, you know, we were protected, I mean, to the extent that we were protected, it was under the First Amendment. We had the right to assemble, the right to say these things. 
And um, we shouldn't take that for granted. If we if if we ask them to censor our enemies, they just well might, and then they'll use it against us. We give an example in the article of a group, uh, Justice for Palestine, Students for Justice in Palestine. I forget what it's called. But yeah, Students for Justice in Palestine. That's right. At Fort, Fordham University, right? Yeah. You know, they're not allowed to operate on campus because they're deemed, you know, they lead to polarization. They're deemed to be too controversial. There's another case, too, of a different group, a, a, a kind of a Marxist, like Trotskyist student group that was trying to get, like, official accreditation also at Fordham and they were, they've had trouble. I don't know whether that, that what the state of that is at this point, but mm-hmm. I mean, this, this stuff is used against the left on these right. campuses. So we should be careful about it. And also it's just about like, look, man, we not, we need to be in it to win it. We got to be playing for the mass audience of Americans. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. Why are you a leftist? One should ask themselves, if you don't have faith that regular people can get on board with a socialist agenda, then, you know, what is this all about? You know, well, and if you do think regular people can get on board with it, and I think that Bernie's campaign showed that, then we need to be thinking about, like, reaching really large numbers of people and taking the bait and playing into a caricature, allowing ourselves to, to play into a caricature set up by the right is is not good and it's you know our point was that it's rather simply avoided and first of all like the university is not going to censor these people okay mm-hmm. you can ask them but they're not going to do it so why do it right you know and uh, you know our thinking is well presumably this is like activism 101 first you ask then they reject you then you protest right so you do that around fossil fuel divestment this or that right that's that's a, a basic escalation you go from advocacy to protest, this kind of stuff. But that request and this issue is a little different, you know. And I and I think that activists should be like, no, we're not we're not calling for the university to censor anyone. We're here to expose the fact that Charles Murray is a fraud. That if Charles Murray's, you know, I haven't looked at his current book, but you know, you could say like, if Charles Murray's first book, if the methodology of his first book were used in a freshman or sophomore paper, you know, they would be reported to the dean, you know? I mean, they would be in violation of, of plagiarism and, and uh, basic academic integrity, you know? Yeah, it seems to me I've been involved in campus activism for a long time now, and and you're absolutely right. Uh, whenever sort of left-wing progressive groups uh, protest that there's somebody who's racist or xenophobic or pro-war or whatever, the administration doesn't codify that practice, if there is, call it a victory, right? The administration doesn't codify the practice as saying, well, racists aren't welcome here anymore, right? Because it's a bourgeois liberal institution. We don't have sort of you know, political stakes like that in those ways. They, the administration codifies it as a rule that's meant to keep the peace, Right. Mm-hmm. So you get more policies, you get more rules, you get in this on the state's you know, books, you get more laws that are meant to keep the peace. And guess who tends to cause a ruckus on campuses and in society? <laughs> we do. <laughs> yeah. So when there are more policies and laws meant to keep the peace, it's typically the left's uh, you know, go to strategies that end up uh, the first victims in, in that. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about I want to present the strongest argument for the you know, for, for our adversaries here. And the, the one that I've heard a lot around, particularly around Milo Yiannopoulos uh, back in um, 
February 1st, I believe that was, at University of Berkeley, is that Milo was planning to out undocumented students. And in mm-hmm. order to protect them, so there's this sort of like uh, this sort of specter of physical harm, direct mm-hmm. threat. Uh, although it's it's important to note that Milo says that he wasn't claiming to out anyone. Of course, there's no reason we should take his word for it. Right. But uh, you, you you and your co-author have a, a pretty nuanced approach to this. Right. Well, the, that qualifies as fighting words. You know, I mean, I think that, mm-hmm. you know, it would be one thing to 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 say that, uh, you know, for protesters to say the university, like, you know, you got to make sure that this guy doesn't name anyone uh, individually and threaten them. Cause that's what fighting words are. It's like insults directed in real time to a specific person that could reasonably lead to fairly immediate violence. So you could, you could also say, okay, well, uh, Yiannopoulos outing of, of students in his talks may or may not qualify as fighting words or not right there. What's immediate violence, but you know, it's directed at individual people. It's, I mean, it, it, it could also be said to definitely qualify as fighting words, sure. but that's, you know, that's different and that's not protected speech. I mean, that's fighting words are not protected under the first amendment. You don't, you do not have the right to go around and say, you know, get this person. You don't have the right to tell a mob of people to attack an individual. Mm-hmm. You, know? you have the right to tell a mob of people that this individual, you know, constitutes your enemy, etc. But you, you know, you can't, you can't incite people to violence. And Milo, was in effect doing that right and i would never be the one to say well don't break the law because you know all of the all of the great uh, a lot of our victories have required breaking unjust laws and i think our our, our laws around immigration are certainly unjust uh, to, to put it lightly is there a way however in which the, the these activists at berkeley were sort of led down this road in terms of they what they let's say they did what they had to do because of this uh because of these well no we're words? not we're not you know we we didn't we didn't mention what people did on the street Right. Absolutely. That's, absolutely. You know, so that's, that's a whole different thing. It's you have like, a very nuanced. So let me ask you though, do you just outside of the scope of the article, let's say they did the right thing. Is it possible that despite doing the right thing that was necessary at the time, it was a pyrrhic victory? Is it possible that in, in winning, they may have lost something in the long term strategic uh, realm? No, I'm, I'm not, I'm not at all opposed to massive disruption mm-hmm. and I'm not opposed to vandalism that happens. I wouldn't advocate it, you know, but I mean, you know, whatever bank windows can be replaced. It's not violence. Mm-hmm. You know, our, our point, you know, at the risk of being almost pedantic, but we don't think we are, our point is much more specific. It's about like the framing of all of this, right? Of course, our side is going to be disruptive and passionate and um, aggressive and hopefully will so outnumber and out argue and overwhelm the other side that these pissant young Republicans who are like thinking they can stir up the campus with these invitations will think better of it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm, I'm not against disruption. That's how stuff gets done. You have to disrupt. Right. What we're arguing is about framing. Okay. These arguments, this framing really matters. And if it's like, you know, that, that the movement is asking for censorship and it wants the university to do its work for it. And it doesn't, you know, it can't, uh, conscience in, in the ridiculous name of student safety. I mean, not around the fighting word stuff, but just like that these ideas that these, these odious political ideas would harm students. First of all, what do you think goes down in most classrooms? Most of what is taught in most colleges is pretty, 
pretty odious, but uh, you know, with a genteel veneer. Mm-hmm. So that's our point: is that the, the message is is crucial in all of this. You know, I think that's a very disciplined, careful argument. Uh, it's it's exemplary in terms of how to make how to make a sort of uh, you know a, a reasoned. Uh, specific appeal uh, when it comes to matters of strategy and I think it's a really important article and people should take it seriously I've seen a lot of stuff on Twitter and Facebook and people are dismissing it clearly without having read it and I think that's really that's really sad nobody reads nobody reads on Twitter nobody reads anymore anything right I mean they, they, they glance at the headline they categor- they lump it into the category of their choosing and uh, they go after yeah. it yeah, I, uh, I, years ago I said this to Doug when all this stuff was starting. Doug Henwood, I said, I said, nobody reads these articles that they're forwarding around. He said, no, really? I was like, no, I, I'm sure. They don't, right. they don't do it. You can it was test just it. A, you can test that thesis pretty simply, I think. And then he did, because he, by mistake, sort of. He forwarded an article about, the headline was, The Link Between Diet and Depression, something, something. Mm-hmm. And it had been forwarded on 12 times by people who were like, I knew it. The link between diet and depression. <laughs> diet causes depression, and the article said the opposite. Confirmation so, bias at its best, right there. I mean, that's that's yeah. what we're that's what we're up against. Yeah. So I want to change registers just slightly. But uh, speaking of Doug Henwood, Doug and Liza Featherstone and yourself wrote a piece some years ago that was very influential, both for myself and for many others, um, and it was prescient. It's called "Action Will Be Taken." Left anti-intellectualism and its discontents. So you argue in this piece, it's a very complex argument. I'll link to it in the show notes. Folks should definitely check it out. But you have a a really incisive critique um, against the dominant ideology on the activist left. And you say that despite, you know, there's a a, – people say, oh, you know, it's it's, – it's, it's a heterodox mix of socialists and anarchists and liberals and post-ideological types of people. And you and your co-authors say, no, there is a dominant ideology on the left, and that's activistism. So tell us what the, what the activist mists are <laughs> and, yeah. and what that's all about. Yeah, the, at, at the time we wrote that, I was still living in the Bay Area. And um, yeah, it was um, – rooted in this sort of what seemed to be a practice that really was kind of like an ideology set of ideas, which is this, you know, uh, it's a type of moralism that I think unconsciously uh, undergirds a lot of left activism. It's just that the thing to do is to act and, uh, analyzing, thinking, developing ideas, um, developing audiences that then might, you know, through the, the cultivation of arguments and through the cultivation of contacts, you know, organizing rather than mobilizing, you know, that, that diminishes. And it's about like action, responding, appearing, uh, and that lends itself is born of, and it lends itself to a kind of anti-intellectualism. And the U.S. left is less anti-intellectual than it was when we wrote that article. Um, And the U.S. left, to the extent that it's anti-intellectual, is uh, no more anti-intellectual than America as a whole. Mm -hmm. But that's what we were uh, trying to address ourselves to, was this kind of secularized religious impulse of like, bearing witness, doing the right thing, regardless of what the outcome was, not thinking about stuff too much, you know? Right. So the opening line, I'm not sure if this was your experience or one of your co-authors, um, 
It's, we can't get bogged down in analysis, one activist told us at an anti-war rally in New York last fall, spitting out the last word like a hairball, this word analysis, right? And I'm sure many of us have had the experience of going to an organizing meeting uh, where we tried to think about deep, you know, analytical, strategic, or political questions, and we had somebody jump in, maybe even interrupt us angrily saying, you know, well, that's just navel-gazing, we need to talk about more pragmatic, you know, action items and, mm-hmm. and things like that. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the constant emergency of the present, right? The permanent emergency of the present. There's always some element in the present that constitutes a dire emergency. And that's not a joke. I mean, there is, there's, I mean, we live in a civilization that is fundamentally unsustainable at war with itself, destroying the planet. Right. I mean, it's like, you know, pick your, Pick your emergency. There's every reason to freak out and and demand immediate action. But without some contemplation, without some understanding of history, without some uh, respect for nuance, et cetera, et cetera, people just end up spinning their wheels. And so that's what what we were getting at was this kind of the anti-intellectualism, the moralism that dominated more than it does now dominated much of the left. And that article is sort of born out of like – I was the one who who pitched it originally, I think, because I was in the Bay Area at the epicenter then, at least, of the nonprofit industrial complex. I think it still is. And in many ways, the subtext of that article is about the nonprofit industrial complex. Mm-hmm. And that is a much deeper thing that I have not written on. Um, but since we're sort of on the subject, let me just dilate. Yeah, I mean, I think part of what this what drives that this ideology that has no name that we called activistism, right? The, like the point of the movement is to create activists who do more action and mm-hmm. bear more witness and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, part of what drives that is some sort of American cultural thing, anti-intellectualism, blah, 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 blah. But more immediately, it's also that a lot of organizing is done by nonprofits that are funded by foundations. And the foundations are in competition with each other. The nonprofits are in competition with each other. The foundations are capital. They are the institutions of the ruling class funding the opposition in an effort, be it you know, for many of the program officers in these foundations unconscious, but otherwise conscious for, for some of the funders to, to contain and channel the resistance that capitalism and racism and sexism produce. And uh, so what happens in this whole cultural matrix of the foundation-funded nonprofit left is completely conducive to activistism, right? It's like short-term, you need to have, we mentioned this in the article, you got to like basically generate headlines. Why? Because you're essentially selling those back to the foundation. And if they don't like the headlines and you're not meeting your productivity targets, essentially you get cut off and the whole thing falls apart. And um, so that's another part of all this, that, mm-hmm. that in the movement away from membership-based organizations towards these externally funded nonprofit models for activism. And this comes out of the 60s. I mean, it, it goes back to the progressive era and, and, the, and the, the original work of, of many of these foundations. But then it really gets a big boost in the 60s and the government with its block grant programs, the war on poverty, helps set up the terrain for this. 
as the federal funds are cut late 70s into the 80s, the foundations increasingly step in. But what you have is, uh, you know, movements that are turned into these like little professionalized uh, mass movements get they, they turn into sort of archipelagos of like little professionalized nonprofit businesses that instead of having members have constituencies right. they take donations right the members aren't involved in decision making they just sort of uh, donate on a monthly basis and they get a, a thank you letter in the mail and, and a, and a but, t-shirt but or a bumper sticker or something along those that lines. would be see that would be greenpeace or something but you know that is better than a lot of nonprofits hmm. which oh, you, don't you, have you mean that. the big the big grants the big grants the big foundation money that, that I'm comes talking about out. a lot of the groups that that will that show up on university campuses and a lot of a lot of the people in these groups and a lot of what these groups do is not all bad. So I'm not going to, you know, pick on people and name them, but no, I'm talking about, you, you know, the names of the organizations that are on your campus. A lot of them don't even do what, what Greenpeace does, which is, you know, pester people for money. And mm-hmm. to the, to the extent that Greenpeace does that successfully, it does have more autonomy from the foundations than a lot of other organizations. Oh, I see, because there isn't that sort of uh, means-tested aspect that they have to prove themselves to to the foundations that the, you know the money was well spent and that that type of thing. Right. Yeah, they can say we've got X number of members, and you know you're not the only you're not the only person with money anymore. You know, it's like turns out the whole population has money. Right. And, th- and this this sort of emerges out of a certain kind of necessity because having been around Occupy, there's a lack of knowledge about how to do organizing how to protest, how to strategize, how to engage uh, people in various political struggles. And, and uh, with the dearth of that type of organic knowledge, you know, with, with the death of social, uh, you know, and labor movements coming out of the 1960s and 70s, a lot of times these uh, foundations and, and uh, nonprofits swoop in, right? They swoop in with this ready-made platform for people to latch onto. Uh, so it's really, it's really provocative that way, I think. Yeah, I mean... I- I think that it's, you know, um, it's partially what you say, a lack of knowledge about this lack of history, whatever, but not that we should do what exactly what was done in the past. It might not work now, you know, but I think it's actually that there is a, there is a, an infrastructure of paid organizers from all these various single issue nonprofits. They're all over the divestment movement. They're all over, you know, police brutality. They're all over all these, all these issues, right? There is an infrastructure and it is foundation funded and it promulgates activistism. It promulgates this kind of anti-intellectual, ahistorical, also usually, you know, assiduously silent on or openly hostile to anything like a Marxist critique of capitalism, right? Uh, it, it reduces the art of politics to training and skills. And, um, you know, on any given campus, you know, you'll find... Uh, offers of upcoming trainings from oh, yeah. from such groups, and it's like you know, well, what's what's going on in those trainings? It's actually it's it's the promulgation of this this ideology of of uh, activistism. Very uh, sort of direct action that's focused on uh, you know uh, getting a lot of media attention. There isn't any t- type of long term strategic orientation to that direct action. It's certainly not tied to the labor process as it was in the nineteen twenties and thirties and and sixties uh, and seventies. Uh, it's it's uh, and it also it also you there there's a whole kind of like anarcho liberalism built into this mm-hmm. uh, foundation left. I mean that's I think it's a great term that that uh, Bhaskar. Who founded Jacobin came up with writing for dissent, but right. uh, and 
I, I would direct listeners to Jody Dean's book, Blog Theory. Yes. You know, she really uh, nails a lot of this stuff. Um, that there is, um, there is this uh, hyper, it's, it's like a pseudo-radicalism, extreme concern with all voices being heard now. There's this enactment in these meetings of people demonstrating their ethical value. Their wokeness, by, right? People are demonstrating their wokeness. <laughs> right. Woke, woke, woke is the modern sexual that's term. A, that's, an epithet, that's an epithet on this show, by the way. If you yeah. But that, I mean, that is, that's, that's exactly what it is. Like what, what is, what is to be woke to, to be woke is to have developed the kind of moral consciousness that you operationalize, uh, where you operationalize your politics as a type of etiquette. Mm-hmm. And you uh, can run a meeting well and you make sure that everybody's heard and missing in the whole thing is like, yo, what the fuck are we doing? You know, right. who are we? Where are we? How are we going to get these people to stop, uh, you know, forcing the poor to pay all the bills and bail out the rich? Right. And that and I think, you know, that performance that you that you mentioned is all about building your own personal brand. You know, it started mm-hmm. off, I think, as building the brand of your foundation of your nonprofit. And now mm-hmm. it's, it's transcended that really with, I think with the birth of social media and in the sort of way in which the nonprofit industrial complex works, they sort of trade employees around. I live in Washington DC and, and we're, if, if San Francisco, the Bay area is the, the foundation, uh, you know, capital, it's probably cap the capital of the West. The capital of the East is certainly Washington DC. And, and they sort of, they're very incestuous with their employees over here. You just jump from one, uh, you know, nonprofit to the next. And so it's really about building your own personal brand about what mm-hmm. kind of relation. And, you know, I, yeah. some, some of my friends do this and, and they're fantastic at what they do. Um, and I, the, the best ones of them, they have a critique, much like the one we're talking about right now, right? I mean, we, mm-hmm. I think a lot of us hate our jobs, right? Uh, but we have to do it anyway. <laughs> you know, that's the nature of selling your labor power and capitalism. Um, so there's, there's something about branding here that really yeah, speaks to the broader cultural trends that we're seeing elsewhere. Yeah, yep. I, I think you nailed it exactly. Um, everyone is constantly auditioning. And yes, uh, yes. The, the foundation, nonprofit industrial complex, foundation-funded nonprofit industrial complex, sets some of the deep structure. And social media is, has been, I think, a disaster. I mean, now I just sound like a cranky old man, but I mean, <laughs> get off yeah. my lawn, right? You know that. that yeah. yeah. Get your Twitter off my lawn. <laughs> Your dang kids yeah. and your dang rap music. Uh, yeah, so I, I want to wrap this up in the next five or ten minutes. But, I, you know, y- your article was written at a, at a really important, uh, uh, you know, kind of moment in uh, activistist uh, history. So, you know, my generation of activists, we came up in the Occupy movement. Uh, you know, we were active socialists or anarchists or whatever beforehand. I was an active socialist prior to the Occupy. But Occupy was really this moment that catalyzed my subgeneration of activists. And I think that even the ones that were very much into it had to walk away from that experience with a, a kind of bitter taste in their mouth when it came to the limitations and the failures that, that emerged from that. Um, and a lot of us, we all sort of, I mean, a lot of me and my compatriots of that, of that time, we have a very similar analysis and we're very skeptical of activistism. And, and that pushed a lot of anarchists I know into socialist politics because they, they saw you need organizations. You need democratic, active, responsive organizations. Uh, we need to move out of these foundations. And, 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 and I think that's, that sort of paid off in terms of the DSA and uh, their, their immense growth in the democratic socialists of America. 
So, but mm-hmm. I'm wondering the the newest generation of of the Twitter left and, the, and that type of thing who didn't live through Occupy. They didn't. They weren't active in Occupy. Believe it or not, right? <laughs> it's hard to believe. It seems like it was yesterday. How could they not know Occupy? But this generation of campus activists don't know Occupy. They didn't live through it. So it seems mm-hmm. to me that what you're speaking to in the first article we talked about is a little bit of a, a process of of relearning. Uh, what so many other generations before have have learned before. So where do you think we are with respect to your activistist uh, critique today? Well, I think that things have improved greatly. I mean, I think that article came out in 2002 or 2001 or something like that. But um, yeah, no, it it has improved dramatically. And I think that millennials are, I mean, you know, you guys uh, have revived the left. It's amazing. Um, So... Uh, yeah, you know, it seems, yeah, okay, people have a bitter taste in their mouth from Occupy, but I feel like the left has been learning lessons. It begins with Seattle, then with the mobilization against the war, then uh, the Obama field, you know, the canvas, ground canvas, and that's, that, you know, whole group of people who will later end up in Occupy are in there learning skills. Then there's Occupy. And then there's Bernie's campaign. You could say, you look at each one of these and say, well, that was a failure. You know, it was a failure, it was a failure, it was a failure. Obama was a sellout. Bernie didn't become president. You know, Occupy Wall Street didn't do anything, uh, you know, whatever. Um, But it seems that the left is becoming more and more sophisticated. uh, And it's, you know, learning the lessons experientially from each of these struggles. And, you know, this is Franz Box Piven's argument about movements that, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, they're like generation long processes. And, and I feel like we are in a process of learning and moving forward and becoming more sophisticated in our analysis of power and more sophisticated in our methodologies about how to have power and how to affect the institutions of our society. And I think really uh, one of the key things is that obviously the whole project of struggling for socialism is, a, is an ethical project. It's a moral project. But that one of the greatest burdens is to overcome moralism, mm-hmm. right? That's, you know, and we have to think pragmatically, strategically, ruthlessly without dispensing of our morality, but like, you know, not – always operating from the the first and only the first only last consideration is like is this moral is this right do i appear ethical but to think you know for real like uh playing for keeps like the other side is and thinking big picture and i I feel like that that increasingly the left is able to shake off this silly moralism obviously the immediate response of everybody now being famous for 15 seconds a day on social media it doesn't help because I mean, that's just lots of negative um, stimulus for, to, to, to not pause and think and not uh, have a complex idea and not think long term, but to have a simple idea uh, or just have a, a good phrase and to play it for immediate effect. But other than that, I think that the left is, is maturing a lot. And I think that, you know, um, I'm, 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 I'm optimistic despite the horrendous situation that we're in and and something i always say around climate change is that you know the easy case to make is that intellectually is that we're not going to make it you know and that's the easy case to make about politics generally is that we're defeated and we're and we're not going to move forward but 
a more difficult and very important thing to do is to try and make a credible case, not, not, not assert some moralizing uh, righteous fantasy, but to really make a credible case for how we can overcome the challenges we face. And I think that, that the left is more and more engaged in that. It's increasingly realist and um, not content with, with righteously bearing witness, but increasingly wants to change things and it wants victories. I think that's spot on. I mean, I've, I've seen a, a, a tremendous improvement uh, in, in everything you just mentioned, uh, even in my relatively short lifespan on the left. Um, you, you and your co-authors write in this last piece, you write, this is, you know, 2002, keep in mind here. You write, what bothers us about activistism as an ideology is that it renders taboo any discussion of ideas or beliefs and thus stymies both thought and action. And I think now with the blossoming of you know Jacobin reading groups in major and minor cities all across the country, that's been going on for years now, the explosion of DSA as an organization, other socialist uh, you know, and left organizations. I mean, people are talking about capitalism. People are talking about mm-hmm. the nature of the state. They're talking about long-term strategies and, and orientations. And, and although we might not always agree, and sometimes I think folks can take a step backwards, and there's certainly going to be growing pains. I mean, my God, we could I could dedicate an episode to growing pains that, that I think the left is probably going to be facing very soon. <laughs> uh, but nonetheless, we are on an upward trajectory, and I think it's really exciting. Here, here, I agree. So, thanks so much for contributing to that. I mean, you're really a trailblazer uh, in laying down the, the theory, and I hope that uh, we can we can pay some dividends uh, in your lifetime. So, thanks so much for coming on the show, Christian. Well, thank you for having me on. And that's our show. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I've got a bonus episode for you guys coming up at week's end. Joining me to talk about the state of politics and and some of the consequences of activistism on college campuses and elsewhere and how to build real material power in in society is Freddie DeBoer. He's a really insightful commentator on these matters. Many of you will be familiar with his work, and I think you're all going to enjoy it very much. So one final pitch... If you like the show, if you want to support the project that we're taking part in here, please check me out on Patreon. Uh, it's www.patreon.com slash deadpundits. Thanks to the listener who informed me that that is indeed a slash and not a backslash. <laughs> I am no computer wizard, that's for sure. Once more, that's www.patreon.com slash deadpundits. All right. Thanks for the support as always. We'll see you again in a few days. Oh, this new crazy mother.